and welcome to Peace of Mind, a podcast looking at mental health and psychiatric conditions and the science behind them. My name is Borja Lagonia. I'm the research coordinator for the National Centre for Mental Health here at Cardiff University and also Swansea University and Bangor University. And we're bringing you conversations from patients affected by these conditions alongside researchers working at furthering the understanding of an incredibly complex area of psychology, biology and psychiatry. This episode, we're talking about self-harm. So first, I'd like to welcome our guest for this episode, Professor Anne John, a researcher from Swansea University, and Sai from the charity Heads Above the Water, who will speak to us about their experiences uh, with self-harm. So I think the best thing to talk do is to introduce ourselves. So Sai, if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background, that'd be fantastic. Yes, well, well, first of all, uh, the organization is called Heads Above the Waves. The Waves, I'm so May sorry. May I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was, um, yeah, it's one thing that always gets um, everywhere we go. There's always variations on it, which is really funny. We should have a much shorter name. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so um, my name's Sai. Uh, I'm originally from uh, the lovely Bath, but the part of Bath that says Bath. So um, I moved to Cardiff uh, in like 2009 for university. And uh, in, wow, roughly 2013-ish, I set up... Um, an organization called yeah heads above the waves uh which is yeah looking to raise awareness about self-harm and promoting positive uh creative alternative coping techniques excellent sounds great uh and yourself and um i guess i grew up in edgeware uh but i moved to um swansea about gosh about 18 years ago now um, and I first started working as a GP. But one of the things that I saw a lot of, and I don't know if it was because I was young or because I was so interested, was I did a lot of people would come and see me about their mental health issues. Yeah. And then as my career progressed, I moved into public health because I wanted to take a more uh, population view I sort of sometimes felt a bit like in general practice that, that I was sort of patching people up and sending them out again, whereas I really wanted to get down to the, the causes of the causes. And then from that, I um, developed all the skills, what we call epidemiology, yep. which is all about looking at patterns and numbers. And that took me into research, which I love. And my the focus of my research has always been... Um, self-harm and the mental health of children and young people fantastic thank you both so th- again thank you for joining us taking time out of your out your schedules uh, to uh, speak to us today I think the first thing that I'd like to see what you guys think about is um, how do you define self-harm it seems to be that majority of people know about it um, it's often in the media but how do we define it is it a mental health condition does it cross over with the mental health conditions um what would you what do you both think? I'll I'll jump in. Go on. I think that um, for us, for the heads above the waves, when we were um, first thinking about what we wanted the kind of the organisation to be, I, like it initially kind of came from from my personal experience where I was kind of in that kind of quote unquote traditional self harm, um, whereas um, the other directors were coming at it from a point of view of. Uh, uh, self-harm in terms of drug and alcohol abuse for sure, example yeah. so the, the kind of interesting thing was that it seemed like there was kind of similar underlying uh, themes I guess but yeah. just that like manifesting in different ways so 
we've we've kind of from day one said that we wanted our definition of what self-harm is 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 that anything that's harmful to one's self um so we include yeah things like um drinking things like drug abuse um things like just engaging in risky behaviors and like um you know going out and intentionally starting fights for example is one thing that we kind of you know would have in our definition of what we would call self-harm um but yeah, just in just in terms of things that are harmful to yourself, because I think to me it's it's almost how it comes out is almost um, secondary to what kind of leads to that, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, what your like, if you don't mind me asking, like, what were your experiences with self harm and? Well, so I'd I'd had a bit of a. Um, a rubbish time at school, to be fair. Um, I well, yeah. So I was I was a proper little goody two shoes, really kind of straight A student. Did really well, um, and I came from like a really lovely home environment. Yeah. Really loving mum and dad. Really great. Um, but I got bullied quite badly. I was a bit of a loner in school. Um, uh, there was a girl, was, you know, um, and. Yeah, I, I guess I, one of the kind of overriding things that I always had was um, this feeling of like frustration or like feeling that um, people didn't quite get me and not just in the kind of, I know I know it's such a cliche thing and looking back on it now being like. And yeah, it's but, not. It's, yeah, do you know what I mean? Being like a teenager being like, oh, you don't get me. But like, and that's kind of, yeah, become a bit of a parody of itself almost. But like to the point where I, I genuinely like, you know, I would listen to totally different music and like go in a totally different direction to what everyone else in the school was or what my family were or you know what I mean and and being very kind of yeah not really knowing how to kind of uh express myself and it's something that I still I still struggle with today and like which is why I always go uh and sort of stutter over my words because I worry that I'm not making my point in the way that I want it to be made. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I'd always kind of struggled with this idea of like frustration and particularly anger, like when I was getting bullied and kind of feeling like a bit powerless and a bit helpless. Um, and well, I, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of messed up as it was like the way I even got kind of into self. Well, the idea got kind of planted into my head of self harm was that there was someone I knew who they'd said, Oh, when I feel like that, th- you know, this is, this is what I do. And at the time I was like, no, 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 that's not, you know, that's not how I'm going to deal with these problems. But then there was one day when I was, yeah, I was just really, really worked out. And I can't even remember what it was about now. But I was just really frustrated and I came home and I remember just, yeah, sitting in my room. And it was kind of like a, like a pot boiling over, you know, yeah. just kind of all just got a bit too much. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't know why. And, and I can't really say that it, that it, that it helped per se, but it, but it kind of did, if that makes sense. Um and yeah so what kind of was a last resort eventually ended up kind of becoming like my my go-to um kind of coping mechanism yeah um whenever yeah it went from when i had like a really 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 bad day to just the most minor thing would kind of set me off and and that would be how i would try to deal with it and and i suppose yeah just get everything from out of my head because i and to this day i still like bottle stuff up quite badly and i'm you know i'm i'm useless at actually uh, asking for help or, or accepting it when it's given me. Um, but yeah, so, so that was kind of it. And then, sorry, I feel like I'm talking loads. No, no, it's totally no. fine. Um, yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> then, then there was one day, so I'd, um, I'd been learning drums 
since I started secondary school, so when I was like 11. Um, uh, and it was maybe when I was like 15, 16, maybe. Yeah. Um, I'd like, I'd come home and like, um, I, again, I was having like that kind of, I'd had a bad day at school or something had gone wrong or, you know. But rather than taking it out on myself, um, for some reason, I thrashed my drum kit and I was like, I was like, I'm going to hit this as loud and as hard as I'm, you know, being noisy and everything as I can. Um, and, and I pretty much just wore myself out. And um, that kind of had the same kind of effect for me that, that self-harm had done in terms of it left me feeling like I'd done something to deal with my problems and, and kind of feeling like it was... Um, yeah, like I'd, like I'd done something. I think that's the important thing. Um, and it wasn't particularly at this big, um, you know, inspirational flash of light where I was kind of like, aha, I mean, this is how I reach self-harm. It was kind of like, I was just like, oh, okay, that's, you know, that's I feel I, better yeah. now. Sure. Um, and then it kind of, that kind of became like my, my over time very gradually kind of became my coping mechanism then was that I'd, I'd play my drums and I'm sure my neighbors were thrilled, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that became like my way of, of, of dealing with things. And and then that kind of developed and I started learning the guitar and I started writing songs and I started writing things in a, in a notebook and that kind of, yeah, it's, it's all kind of little steps that all led towards me kind of replacing that perceived need to hurt myself. Sure. Um, and yeah, yeah, so it's kind of, that's kind of gradually, um, and you know, to this day I still use drums and that's still my my really go to yeah my, my what's really good for my mental health really um and that's i suppose that's kind of what heads above the waves was originally kind of uh, set up about was the idea that self-harm is serving some sort of purpose but you can get that same kind of purpose from positive things so originally i was like drums are great everyone should learn the drums but then talking to other people i kind of found out that it's not the same for everyone and that like, you know, while, while drums worked for me, uh, someone else might go running or someone else might go, uh, you know, uh, writing lists was one that came Sudoku. out. Sudoku. Sudoku. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That comes across. Which I, I, just, I still can't get my I head around. I don't, don't get that. But it does work. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of um, a brief history of my life. Sorry. That's a, <laughs> I, no, that's fantastic. How does that compare to some of the um, other... Um, stories that you've had patients uh, speaking to uh, and regarding self-harm is that a, a, re a regular kind of story in terms of size or is it quite broad so so i think size described really well um when people are finding it difficult to deal with their emotions particularly in that sort of adolescent late adolescent age and that self-harm sometimes the purpose of it for the individual is is to have some sort of release from that emotion but there are lots of motivations yep. for self-harm um, that range from um, people wanting to punish themselves to people wanting to die and those um, motivations change for each individual over time or even over a day. And one of the things we do in research when we talk about self-harm is we think about it as an intentional self-injury or self-poisoning, regardless of motivation um, and intent. 
so regardless of suicidal intent and that's how how we look at self-harm and and that gives some blurred boundaries with with some of the things that's that size talked about so when we're working in research we we would in we wouldn't include things like um eating disorders sure um and the reason or going out and having fights and the reason we wouldn't is because the primary purpose isn't to um self-injure or self-poison oneself that can be a consequence Mm. and i gen and i in lots of ways agree with si that there are lots of reasons why people might do those risky behaviors blur into self-harming behaviors but but they also blur into other things. Yeah, yeah. And That's why it's so difficult yes. as well, isn't it? Yeah, to actually, well, treat, I suppose. But yeah, in terms of... So I think when, when you're trying to do research, that's the way that we've come up with trying to have something that we can look at. But I think there's lots of crossovers with eating disorders. There's lots of crossovers with kids who are doing... Um, you know, traditionally risky things like, um, you know, having sex early or taking lots of drugs, but also much more dangerous things with cars and sports. And where that crosses over is a thing that we would call ambivalence. Yeah. And that ambivalence is where a young person might be, or, or an older person might be doing quite risky things. And it's because they don't care if they the live or die right. about the consequences and I think that's so those um, definitions can be quite challenging can't they when when we all talk because people feel can feel very strongly about things like um, non-suicidal self-injury can't mm. they that that's very different but I think in my experience people's motivations and intents change a lot over time but I think what Sai did what was really interesting is that thing about finding alternative ways mm. of dealing with distress and, and we went through some of them and, and pe- the other thing that sometimes works is playlists mm, yeah, um, yeah. so people have a specific playlist that they've created yeah. that can soothe basically it's about soothing isn't it but the problem with that is that it's very difficult for kids in school to get their earphones out yeah, yeah. and sit and listen to a playlist people almost find it more acceptable to sit there with a word search or a sudoku yeah i think as well like i because i um i'm from a very like metal kind of <laughs> uh background where like i i because i always um i took like great kind of comfort really in like um <laughs> almost the opposite of soothing do you know what I mean like music that was like really kind of like yes. aggressive and like um, yeah, I, I completely agree when I was like that teenage years and go through well not not going through what I you went through but I don't mean soothing music I mean things that oh things that actually soothe you. oh right, right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say yes. music, not whale music <laughs> slip not yes <laughs> um, well because yeah because that, that's the thing though and, and uh, one of the things that I kind of have done in more recent years is to actually start off you know with a playlist that is like uh, start a playlist that is super like uh, yeah like Slipknot or like and like Every Time I Die which obviously like <laughs> thanks mum you know great but like um, 
but that actually kind of they start off with that kind of angry intent and actually that kind of the relation to someone else and one thing that I've always just found so so powerful through music is this idea that um, other people have been through the same thing as me and like it's actually yeah band called Taking Back Sunday great great emo band if anyone's uh, interested um, seeing life they've yeah, <laughs> they um Every single album they've done, there's been something on there that I, I listen to and I go like, oh, that's that's me. Do you know what I mean? Or, um, yeah, particularly like, yeah, I love like pop punk and stuff like that. So there's a lot of kind of things that I relate to in those. And so, yeah, the playlist that I've tried to make recently kind of go from like a really kind of heavy band to like something that's maybe still kind of heavy, but in a major key that kind of leads into something that's more positive, that leads into something that's more kind of chilled out. And it's it's almost kind of like a, a step-by-step kind of thing. You know, as you go through the tracks, you go from being really like, to like, ah, you know what I mean? So um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great one. That's but, interesting as well, how you developed these techniques um, by yourself. Yeah, kind of accidentally yeah. <laughs> insofar. Well, so yeah, so again, one of the things that we wanted um, Heads With The Waves to be was this, uh, a way of promoting and kind of almost dispelling the myths around like helplines and things like that. So I remember my sister coming to me um, with the number for the Samaritans and saying, look, I, I'm worried about you and I think you should ring, ring these people. And I, at the time I was like, oh no, like my problems aren't important enough for Samaritans. Um, of course, what I've kind of come to learn now and, and from sitting alongside Samaritans on all sorts of groups and things as well is like, they're just, they're just the best. They're just amazing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's all sorts of wonderful um, kind of listening services out there, and and people who are there for for different things that you're going through. So like, um, there's the campaign against living miserably, Carl. Yes. Yeah. Um, which, like, I've I've never personally accessed them, but like from everything I've seen from them online, just they seem like amazing resource for men and and um, a helpline that like blokes can go to. And I don't yeah. know. It sounds yeah. really like a Everything to say, but um, that's an yeah. interesting thing I want to actually ask about in terms of the breakdown with self harm in terms of male female and the prevalence in terms of age and the demographics. Is there a specific demographic that is more likely to self harm? Is there a specific um, gender that is more more likely to self harm? So some of the thing, these things are really difficult to know about because most of the the facts and figures that we have are based on people who seek help from services. Mm. Yeah. Um, so then in, in, that would mean that a certain group would be more likely or less likely to, to seek help. To seek help. And it might be, but we have got certain community surveys. So we do know that self-harm is commoner in females. Yeah. Um, it's the, the highest rates we see are in um, sort of 16 to 20-year-olds. Um, when we do community surveys, um, if we look at like 16 to 24 year olds, about a quarter of young women have self-harmed at some point wow. in their life and about 10% of young men. Um, I think people very much underestimate how common self-harm is. For the vast majority, they've done sort of big surveys where they followed kids from school through to their early 30s. And the vast majority of young people will will stop self-harming as they get older. And that's probably for all the reasons that, that size described in, the, in that they find, you know, their lives change. You yeah. know. One of the things about, you know, teenagehood and adolescence, it's a time of huge change. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of 
challenges and separations and exams and uh, things that are part of normal human experience. And sometimes, you know, we actually sell it as a time when they're meant to be happy. Um, <laughs> and so, so some of that, that settles as people get older yeah. and they learn ways to deal with it. So, so much commoner in young women. But for people as they get older who continue to self-harm, the risks become different. So if someone who is uh, much older, so say over 65, who starts self-harming, or over 75 even, then um, although the rates are really small compared to young people, um, you it, it's a much more serious indication sure. that, of underlying problems. See, that's a, in my, I mean, my experiences are very much about what's based upon the media. I've never done any research in self-harm. It's very much about what's always been speed-fed to me through, through the media and through just interactions. So this thought that there's people over 65, over 75 who start self-harming is a really interesting perspective because it is very much... I think one of the things that people miss, and you know, and I would count myself among those, is that most of my research is young people, but yeah. we have done some work about older people. And what you start realizing is the parallels. So in the time, in the way that being young is a huge time of change, yeah. so is getting older. Mm. You know, you lose work. Yeah. You have lots of bereavements. There's a change in the way the world is looking at you. And so suddenly when I was talking with lots of people who work with older people when yeah. we were doing this work, you suddenly realize, well, actually, these are quite similar age periods in in life that are difficult to adjust to. Do you think it's going to become even more, um, I'm not going to say, I'm not saying it's going to become even more prevalent, but an interesting perspective, the thing to look at in the next 10, 20, 30 years as we begin to live longer, live healthier longer in some respects or unhealthier longer in terms of self-harm? It's still very rare in, mm. old, in older people. So I, I think... You know, one of the reasons why we do, we look at patterns is that patterns change. Yeah. And, you know, even over my career, I've seen the, the patterns change. So I think, you know, at the moment, one of the big debates in research world is about is self-harm increasing or not? Yeah. And um, one of the... One of the things that any of us that have been working in, in the area for a long time would say is that the stigma associated with self-harm, because it's a really difficult topic, and what that does um, is it stops people seeking help, but it also stops people talking to people when they self-harm. So that stigma has reduced considerably. And we've also got much better at, at admitting young people, you know, under 16 when they come into contact. So all those things mean that people are seeking help more and we're responding better, which can make figures look higher. Um, on the other hand, there could be a real increase. I yeah. don't think mm. we, we know the answer yet. Well, I think I think an interesting thing. Well, actually, yeah, it's two things, actually. Sure. Um, one is, is that, you know, in terms of if we're talking about like, uh, older people self-harming. I think that for one thing, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to see how like my generation or, you know, generations after me, how if we, if we instill positive coping mechanisms into people's lives from, from an early age as well, because, you know, um, we're, we're 
we've been asked into like primary schools to do workshops with kids for self-harming and that's like mind-blowing mm. um but I think instilling, yeah, having positive coping techniques or negative coping techniques instilled from an early age, and especially if they, I mean, like Anne says, like, I think a lot of people kind of work their own way out of things, but at the same time, if they don't, or if they don't have, you know, um, things around them to encourage them towards healthy, positive coping techniques, then it can definitely, that can just get ingrained. And, you know, there's, there's talk about how self-harm can be addictive as well. <clears throat> and I think that's, you know, I think that's that's true. Um, and yeah, I, I just wonder whether that's like long term going to have an impact on, you know, our generations. I really hope so. Us. Yeah. Well, one thing you mentioned that was stigma. And one of the things we try and do with the podcast and with NCMH in general, obviously, is the education aspect and trying to kind of like get rid of any misconceptions and myths or stigmas. And one of the big ones that is tied into self-harm is that it's an attention-seeking behavior as a um, is that something you guys have ever come across in that terms? Yes. Of- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. If I had a nickel, um, <laughs> the uh, yeah. Sorry, I keep on thinking of other things to say as well. No, so feel free. Back, yeah, bring I'll it up. Yeah. Yeah. as well. Um, I think re-attention seeking. Um, when we've done sessions in like we do like a teacher training kind of thing where we go and talk to teachers about supporting young people with self-harm um the attention seeking question comes up pretty much every time um but the interesting thing that i would always say is that well even if it is attention seeking is there you know what's happening in that person's life that the only way they can get attention is in a harmful way what you know what other things could they be doing instead Completely agree with Sai there. I think as well, um, sometimes the fact that uh, people use the attention-seeking phrase is about stigma. So I think when you're um, a teacher or working in an emergency department or a paramedic and you're confronted with somebody self-harming, it doesn't... um, it's very difficult to deal with and it can be quite scary. Okay. Um, it's not something that people are used to talking about. They're not quite sure what it means. Um, and then so the easiest way then to deal with someone in distress um, is to separate yourself a bit from it. And atten- using the phrase attention seeking does that for people. Mm. Um, and I think so. I think one of the ways we combat it is all this awareness raising that we're yeah. doing. And and I, and I always come back to the same thing as Sai, as I always say, well, they're, they're attention-seeking for a reason. And what we need to focus on is... It's that reason. Is yeah, that yeah. reason. And it can be a range of reasons. I mean, yes, like definitely. I said earlier, what are the causes? The causes are going to be obviously a multitude of different issues. Like you said, it was quite interesting in terms of the life-changing aspects of teenage years and life-changing aspects later on in life in, in pension could lead to... Oh, here's one thing that I was going to jump in with before yeah, as well. carry on. But this is maybe a little bit off topic, but do we think it's harder to be a teenager these days or is this just a thing that every generation says? As in, I'm at the tender age of 27 uh, doing workshops in schools and I'm thinking, poor, that would be tough. I, like, I'd struggle being in school at this age now. Um, does every generation say that about kids or is it we've got a really intense period at the moment? Right. So this is what I think. I think that um, 
It is a transition period of life and always has been. But I think there are very different things happening at the moment. And that's reflected not just in mental health. You know, we've got reducing teenage pregnancy rates. We've got reducing um, alcohol, uh, possibly increasing in the use of other substances. So there is definitely a change happening in this generation. Um, what, how that's impacting on them, I think, is difficult to pick apart because some of those things you could say are good things. Yeah. Um, a big social change is um, the online world. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's huge. And yeah. so I think things are very different. Um, and I guess, I mean, one thing, one road I don't want to go down is that usually when I speak about the online world, it's people are very concerned and it's always negative. And I think we always have to bear in mind there are huge positive aspects to yeah. kids' activity online, mm. both in terms of supporting each other, isolated kids, finding other people like themselves. Um, so I think there are huge positive aspects, but I think... There are negative aspects. So we've just done a piece of work on cyberbullying and um, where cyberbullying is, is very different to traditional face-to-face -face bullying is that it doesn't stop when you go home. You know, it's there all the time. And then, you know, young people are, are particularly sensitive to being um, excluded. Yeah. It's an age where you're very sensitive to being excluded and different. And the potential exposure that you have online compared to when people were traditionally bullying is huge. Mm. And so I think there are different pressures for the current generation. I, th I think as well on the on the being different thing as well, that, that I think that's one of the hardest things of being a teenager, isn't it? Is that like uh, you really want to be your own person and be individual and be unique but at the same time, you, want you to just want to fit in, yeah, be part of something. Yeah, so it's that weird dichotomy that you're trying to deal with on top of everything else and all the weird social pressures and stuff. So it's really interesting that you were raised that, is it harder to be a teenager now? Because I remember way back when, before the internet, before I had the internet, and, you know, not object, subjectively looking at it, I don't, I don't understand how kids genuinely like, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, how they do it. Well, I have better iPhones than me. I'm just like, what? <laughs> it's just, it seems almost exhausting to be able to, you know. But, well, sleep yeah. is a big thing. Yeah. You know, and, we're, and we also don't know all the answers to this yet, but we do know that lots of kids now are on their devices and not yeah. sleeping as much as they did before. So I think there are changes mm -hmm. and we're... We're exploring what those changes are. I think definitely it's a really interesting a point at which to be doing research, especially mental health with the changing demographics, with the changing access to things like the internet. And in particular, um, if we talk about internet use, um, and you've been involved with some work recently, a research article looking at a systematic review of the relationship between internet use, self-harm and suicidal behaviour in young people. I have just read that out of the paper. Oh, you missed the best bit, though. The good, the bad and the, the unknown. The good, the bad and the unknown, yeah. <laughs> the subtitle, yeah. I mean, looking through it, like, like you said, it's really interesting that there are positive aspects, there are absolutely negative aspects. And... You know, we have to take both in each other. Is there anything in particular from the work that you want to highlight that you want to speak about? So I guess from that piece of work, uh, 
I've spoken already about how, you know, the good aspects are for certain marginalised groups like LGBTQ. Um, they can find support online, whereas previously they were quite isolated. But um, I think one of the, the big things that came out for me from that work was that we'll never keep up. So if we, if we think that the way that we can um, work in this setting is to keep up with all the platforms, it's never going to happen. Um, and so I guess the best way that we can work online is by working with young people to learn things like bystander interventions, which is really hard. We all know how hard that is. And to be what do you mean by bystander interventions? So, I, so I guess when you see something happening online, yeah, um, that you think is bullying or negative, or if someone is uh, seeking help. So one of the things we found in that study is that increasingly young people express their distress online. Um, then to equip young people, not to be responsible for that person, but to know. Um, how to respond and to for enough of them to be going actually you can't say that yeah so really I mean I I sort of don't like the word but it's to be good digital citizens isn't it mm. in effect yeah absolutely and we need to teach them that from a young age I think yes and then the only other thing is about delivering therapy online yeah so one of the things we found was um so when young people uh, see things written in the news media or uh, YouTube videos, they, at that age, they're particularly susceptible to identifying with things and, and behaviours being normalised or behaviours being triggered. And um, one of the things you see with, say, something like a YouTube video is, you know, Unlike before, that video can be shared 300,000 times. Yeah. And we, I think we as a community need to be in that space delivering advice and therapy. Now, that's not saying that online therapy for young people is going to replace face-to-face -face work. But sometimes it's a good start. And that's definitely one of the things we do with NCMH. I mean, we've got a lot of resources on our podcast pages. Link, we will have links to all these papers that we mentioned throughout the podcast, and obviously to the charities and to all the work that Anne works with and does. But we also, with the uh, NCMH website, we've got links to Mind, to Half Health, to lots of mental health charities that are able to help people and are able to point them in the right directions. And I think it's something that we're aware of as a research institute and aware of as an organisation that, you know, the first thing that most people do when they've got an issue is they go on Google or they go on Facebook or they go on Twitter and they start reading there. And it's very much about getting the right information to them as early as possible. So that's why we are actively making these podcasts. So, you know, if there is someone who's suffering from mental health problems or is interested in mental health problems or the research behind them, they can listen to this, they can access the resources, any resources that we have. So obviously, please, if you're listening to this and you're interested, do check all those, all those resources out. There's lots on there. Um, one of the things I was hoping to speak a bit more about with the misconceptions and the myths um, with self-harm, we mentioned earlier some things that I hadn't thought of as being self-harm. So going out looking for fights, which may not be self-harm, like you say, but may end up becoming self-harm. I mean, the classical thought of self-harm would be that people cut themselves 
However, there are things like extreme exercise. I mean, it's that, see, so that's difficult. So, yeah. so from a, a research perspective, I would probably wouldn't include that in self harm. But I, I sort of like I said earlier, sometimes those things come from the same places. Sure. And um, and I, and I guess that's the that's the difficulty is that the so the, so the way we talk about it is is that it's got to be an in, an intentional um, self injury or self poisoning, but where. Um, some things that you might not think of. So th- things like burning and hair pulling and scratching and yes, interfering yeah. with wounds, but but also sometimes not taking your medication. Mm. So it's quite broad. I mean, it's things yes. that you wouldn't, absolutely wouldn't think well, and of. That's, yeah, and I think that's, that's the really tricky thing because, you know, actually, uh, how do I say this without condoning drug use? But as in, you know, someone can recreationally use drugs and it not be... Uh, a self-harming behaviour per se. Do you know what I mean? Whereas, yeah, it, it's it's almost. I suppose, like I say, yeah, the the action is almost secondary to the motivation. Sure. For, from from my and our point of view, I suppose, not necessarily from a research point of view, but um, yeah, I think that there's. Well, yeah, I think that just in general, one thing that's really important is actually promoting. Promoting like the idea of self worth and the idea of self care. Absolutely. Because um, I mean, well, one one thing that I've kind of stum- maybe stumbled upon over the years is that the idea that like you can do something that's like good for your mental health, and you can do things. So, do you know what I mean? So playing drums for me, for example, like I just play drums. That's you know, in in the same way that the motivation for your behaviour that causes self-harm you've got this motivation that can cause self-care so if i'm just practicing drums for the sake of you know my band junior have a new album coming soon um <laughs> if i'm practicing drums for that that's different to me going i'm in a really bad place right now and i need to go and hit something very loudly um do, do you know what i mean i think Absolutely. that like yeah. Yeah. making the intention that you want to do something um to look after yourself um video games is another really big one i love video games um and when we've been talking to kids in schools, this is coming up a lot. And there was a really great TED talk, and I've been racking my brains trying to remember what her name was, um, of a, a woman sort of talking about the, the benefits of video games, basically. And I'm, I'm sure one of the things... Essentially in, what I'm I hearing is that... her. Yeah, um, yeah, blonde. Um, yeah, but yeah, sort of saying that there was research that... I think it was something like, you know, playing an online, an online game with uh, people suffering from anxiety had a similar effect as people taking medication or something even, which is... It's almost like a a U-shaped curve. Yes, okay. So um, where it's sort of like too much and too little. Yeah. Uh, It can be problematic, but in between can help. Yeah. So rock music and video games are definitely the way to go. Basically, if you take anything away from this podcast, (laughs) listen to heavy metal and play video games all day. Um, (laughs) Not. Not. (laughs) In terms of the media depiction of um, self-harm, accuracy, are are these... I mean, obviously, it's going to be quite a range going from sensationalist to perhaps underplaying it. On the whole, what do you think when you see these depictions, whether it's in newspapers whether it's on TV shows or so I've worked um, quite a lot with the Samaritans 
on um, various soap opera storylines and um, newspaper articles. And I think, you know, there's a whole research evidence about how, particularly with suicide, but also with self-harm, when you make the reasons very simplistic, so they self-harmed or... Uh, they took their own lives because they were bullied. Then there's lots of people, particularly young people are susceptible to this, who identify with that. And um, that makes it what we call cognitively available to them as a way of dealing with their distress. Sure. So so we call it contagion. People like or dislike that phrase. But these things can affect people, there's no doubt. Um, also, um, when people talk about the method that it happens, it you know that it is an issue. I think there are really good guidelines about reporting and um, how you should portray it in me- any sort of media from the Samaritans. And I think lots of um, companies that work in in this area do work with you know people like myself and people like the Samaritans to try and make their storylines less able for people to identify with so it's things like um you know not having not naming a medication having just a plain bottle or not showing what the method is so I think um it is really important And, you know, I guess the thing that everyone talks about and that you may have been leading into is 13 Reasons Why. Um, And it's those sorts of things are very complex because they also generate conversation. So to anyone who doesn't know about 13 Reasons Why, this is a Netflix series, essentially. Um, I've I've not seen it, but I've heard about it through the media where a suicide note or something was left through tapes and it was... Yes. is accused of promoting the suicidal and, I, and, in, and and there are some cases that people link to that series however um, it did generate a lot of conversations with young people about um, certain behaviors so saying things that you might think are jokes and not realizing that people are vulnerable mm. you know I've got um, at the time when it came out, I had a, I've got a son who was about 15 at the time. And I know that I, and I'm sure his friends came and talked to me because they know what I do, not because I'm this cool, approachable mother. I think you're cool. <laughs> Thank you. But, um, but those conversations were really useful, I think. So, so it's, so there were only, there were certain portrayals in that series that I, that, contravened guidelines sure okay but actually i think soap operas are a really good way of um getting people getting young people in particular to talk Mm. and it's one of the few who knew that we were suddenly when i grew up television was going to ruin family life and now it's about the only time you get your teenagers to sit in a room (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, well, yeah, the, the yeah, I, I've I've had such a love hate relationship with this show. I got so into it. Oh my gosh! I like I watched the first episode. I was like, this is lame. And then by the end, I was like, no, what's going to happen? <laughs> um, but at the same time, 
I had such conflicting views on it myself watching it because I was I was there and I was watching the actual spoiler alert sorry everybody the actual death they actually depict the death in it um, which I thought was super gratuitous and unnecessary it was very gratuitous yeah. and unnecessary um, and I, I found myself quite like disturbed by it I was, mm. I was like ooh I don't like watching this my kind of flip side was is that I was like well it like from the very beginning it didn't stray away from the fact that it was a series about suicide do you know yeah. what I mean and like I kind of knew what I was getting into but I didn't make it any less I think the, to see. the difficulty is is that is that viewing of these things has become very different difficult so technically 14 15 16 year olds shouldn't have been watching it because mm. there were certain episodes that had you know a certificate of 18 on them mm. but that's not the way people consume things Media now anyway, uh, yeah. at all through yeah. Netflix and Amazon and things so do you think that uh, content makers have a great responsibility to, to depict it more accurately when it's so widely available ah yes got my hand up <laughs> please ask me uh, we did a we did a little um, session in our shop we got a shop in the centre of Cardiff in the Castle Emporium um, and we did a little session in there recently where we got some young people together to actually come in and talk about um, depictions in the media yeah and um one of the, I mean, one of the really interesting things was is that half people hadn't even seen Thirteen Reasons Why. Um, a lot of people have kind of forgotten about it in that it's completely. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of it was it was super intense, and now it's kind of oh, it's on to the next. It's now Logan Paul, and it's now um, YouTubers is the is the big thing that um, kind of came out of this discussion that we were having in terms of how rather than in a traditional sense like with soap operas for example they'd go oh, okay you know we've got a script and it needs to get passed by broadcasting standards or whatever do you know what i mean it needs to and it would have lots of consultation with youtubers suddenly you know one kid with an iphone can go and make a video that gets viewed tens of times, times yeah. that has absolutely no uh, like yeah the, the logan paul uh, video was a, was a good example of that of him yeah, because yeah. that threw up all sorts of issues. Yeah. Because um, so my kids also were watching his channel quite regularly, and it, it seemed fairly innocuous. Um, however, with that, there was a clear disconnect for from for him, wasn't there? Yeah. Between what he was filming and what he was going to put on YouTube, and, yeah. and and for me, I think that's an interesting area of research is about the emotional connection when you have a phone in between yeah. you yeah. and what's happening which I'm sure is a Black Mirror episode just waiting to happen isn't it but yeah, Black yeah. Mirror everyone should watch Black Mirror completely <laughs> but, but it is and, like, and I'm sure Darren Brown's done things as well which I know are obviously a little bit sensationalised and stuff but um, Darren Brown is great um <laughs> But yeah, there's there's been things, isn't there, on like yeah, well, on, on kind of bystander behaviour almost yeah. as well, yes, where yes. when people feel disassociated from something, they'll kind of encourage more and more. There was that really good one with like they encouraging bad things to happen to this one guy and like to studio audience, and it ends with oh, I won't spoil it, but it ends with a, a big shock, and um, yeah, it, it was really interesting to mm. see how people disassociate themselves, and I think I suppose coming back to um, what you were saying out about like with the people saying it's attention seeking in terms of it's easier for people to kind of disassociate from something sometimes and kind of put a little barrier in between them and something 
bad almost, do you know what I mean? And I guess what Sai said about YouTube videos comes back to that thing of, of we have lost, con- you know, any idea of having any control yes. over yeah. the content of what people view because it's completely unregulated. Uh, and anyone going out with an iPhone can have footage about the news. You know, we've got 24-hour news now. Um, so it's really difficult. To, you can have guidelines, but it's really difficult for people to know about them. And, and I think it, it goes back to educating people about their personal responsibilities. So one of the things with NCMH is the um, promotion of understanding and promotion of education. And also, and you're involved with NCMH as, as one of our PIs. Yeah. So could you tell us about some of the things that you're involved with, the National Centre Mental Health and some of the work that we do as a collaboration? So... Um, On the research side, I work with um, linking routinely collected data. So all the stuff that happens um, as part of our day-to-day contact um, in health services and other services. But we link it anonymously, so it's for, it's privacy protect, protecting. Yeah. But it means we can we can look at hundreds of thousands of people, and I think in mental health that's really important because when people do big studies, it actually requires things from participants, and people with mental health problems often aren't in a space where they want to they get they're able to make that sort of commitment and then when you try and come back and talk to people it's difficult for yeah. them whereas when we work with routinely collected data men, people with mental health problems have a voice in research and so we do a lot of work on um well self-harm and suicide but then also people with serious mental health problems and common mental disorders and then I do lots of work with you really about getting that education and awareness out there and one of of the ones I enjoyed the most was an event you put on in Swansea in the Liberty Stadium called It's a Man's Thing. Oh yeah. And um, trying to get men to come and talk about their mental health and hear us chat and engage them is really difficult yes yeah and you had a simulated racing car you had football players and rugby players um and you managed to fill that room and um the that's our comms team who managed to fill that room i had nothing to do with it (laughs) i was downstairs looking at samples you know (laughs) but it was amazing yeah and the conversation that we had you know partly because there were a a bunch of football and rugby players talking about um the things that they'd struggled with when they you know which were a bit like you know being unemployed when they'd had injuries or their careers had come to an end and the conversations we had will stay with me to this day there was one guy who stood up and was basically saying that he had you know suffered with mental health problems from a young age um, but had never you know what could he do because he didn't feel like he could talk to his GP about them and you know and we all went well actually the onus is on us to make it so that you can and I think one of the big things we need to do going forward is is develop and deliver services that men feel comfortable um 
going to. That feeds in nicely, Isai, to your heads above the waves. So if we if we finish up talking about some of the work that your charity do, how you got involved, the shop as well, some of the pretty cool yeah. merchandise you guys sell. So, uh, okay, yeah, I, I always feel kind of bad um, talking about uh, what we do, which I shouldn't because we're great, we're awesome. Uh, no, but as in um, one of the things that we've always wanted to be is something that's not... Okay, so I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bashing anything else because everyone is doing really great work. Um, but we, one of the things we wanted to be is not something that's particularly cold and clinical and not something that's like childish or condescending, just sure. something that's like, yo, look, we're real people and we've been through rubbish stuff as well. So, you know, we're here for you um, and kind of trying to be on that level. So one of the things that we've, we've done is... Um, to try and fund our work is to have like merch that's got like messages behind the designs so it's like a cool t-shirt that you'd want to wear anyway but that when you buy it it's like a swing tag that explains a little bit about mental health and hopefully is like a, a bit of a conversation starter so um the way that i always look at it is if i see someone in a band t-shirt that i like i might be like oh sweet band you know or you know in the way that we were like oh yeah Slipknot, yeah. Um, but then you kind of like have that conversation and maybe, you know, maybe that leads to, oh, I saw this band play that festival or oh, I liked that album or whatever. Um, the idea would hopefully be that it could be something that starts conversations about mental health and, and particularly about positive ways of coping. Um, as well as, yeah, that all kind of has, um, we stuff it full of your order, full of like flyers and postcards and um, general posy good stuff that's got like, nice messages to try and share with people um, Fantastic. which originally started off as yeah we just had like three t-shirts that we would take around in a little suitcase to gigs and um, try and uh, flog to people um, and it's kind of that was then helping us create content for our website which we share people's experiences people's and we'll stories have a link and, as well yes hatw.co.uk um, <laughs> which has got like yeah ways of people uh, ways of coping with stuff um, that's kind of then grown into <laughs> we've now got a shop uh, where we we sell merch out of um, and, and has also developed into rather than just sharing people's experiences online is that we now go into schools and do workshops and sessions um, and teacher training and stuff as well to, to kind of it's one thing to say playing the drums is really good um, I think it's another thing to actually take a bunch of drums in and let kids have a bash pardon the pun uh, for themselves so um, yeah that's that's one of the things that we're doing as well um, and just yeah kind of trying to tick on and, and trying to get people to well to yeah to talk about uh, mental health openly and you know we're particularly trying to have a big push on um, uh, getting men talking which is a really um interesting area for me in particular as well i think we're kind of in this weird state where the definition of what it is to be a man is very blurred at the moment in yeah. terms of you've got some people who are really kind of like pints matches and then you've got some people who are more like me who are like <laughs> music and uh, uh feelings but um you know i think that we kind of need to have this unifying thing that like men are you know it's okay to talk about stuff um we're also doing a big focus on trying to um, do things uh, for and with uh, the LGBTQ plus community as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's great that's come up in conversation today as well. So, I think that's a great, great point at which to end. Just to say a massive thank you to you both um, for coming in, taking time genuinely out of your very busy schedule to speak to, to us today and get involved with the podcast. 
as usual, the best way uh, for you to, guys to get whoever is listening to us is to go on the National Centre for Mental Health website. So that's ncmh.info. Click on the podcast link. All the links that we mentioned today will be on there. Links to the head above the wa- uh, waves, not water, waves. <laughs> <laughs> um, all the, uh, some of the links to the uh, research that Anne's done. So those are open access papers that anyone can read, irrespective if you've got you know academic background or not. They're very, really, really worthwhile. All the resources we've spoken about as well. So please do check it out and have a have a look also links to size band and everything like At that music of junior <laughs> online <laughs> um, please make sure to rate and review our, uh, our podcast spread the word let people know about the work that we do and do get involved with National Centre for Mental Health check us out on Facebook on Twitter um, look out for us on Instagram and all the events that we do as well across Wales across the country it'll be great to to hear from you and if you want to get in touch with us by email or by anything to tell us how we're doing uh, give us an idea for any future episodes or just want to get involved with our research and our work that would be fantastic thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time 